my pleasure to talk to you today about this, about baptism. Special time in any parent's life to see their children. I can remember well Jane being baptised and Jordan being baptised. So when I speak to you about uh, baptism, it comes from uh, a place of belief because this was very uh, catalytic, both the Lord's Supper and baptism, catalytic in my own faith. I was baptised on the 14th of December, 1978. Um, Amory was baptised on the same day. That's another story. Very intimate setting, just Amory and I and 303 others on that day. And I first took communion about 1995. So let me say at the outside, that's not the way it's supposed to work, but that's the way it worked in my life. I've seen many baptisms over the time. I look around the audience here and I remember very much Kirsty being baptised. Um, and I see for many people it's catalytic in terms of their faith. Um, I know Laura was baptised 31st of July 2010 and I know that Rachel was baptised on the 25th of March 2012. And I trust that those were moments, I see Colin, I remember Colin's baptism very well. If I look around, I could pick out lots of people. But I see it as being a really important step of faith, and it certainly was in my own case. While I was uh, preparing this uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, I was sort of getting it all into gear. What does baptism look like? What does, it, what does the Lord's Supper look like? How should it be observed? Who do it? All that kind of stuff. And last week, um, in the middle of the night, I just woke up and I had this incredible feeling of it's not about that there's no heart in this there's no emotion in this so that was either the holy spirit's prompting to say no let's get to the heart of what these things are or it's me having worked through those things and this kind of bubbling to the surface but whatever it is um, i believe that to be the case so let me pray before i start i don't normally do this but but let's pray that god will show us what's here father i would just pray that you let us see a fresh some things that we may have known about and seen and observed over many years. But Father, I want us to see your heart for it. What actually are these things? What do they represent, baptism and the Lord's Supper? What does it mean to be part of those? Please, through your Holy Spirit, touch uh, everyone here. Give us something fresh, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So why do we consider them together? Um, we consider them together, if you looked at our statement of faith, you'd find it says that there are two ordinances that we observe. It's a strange word, that ordinance, isn't it? And you might have different views of what that is. There are two meanings of ordinance. One is, it's you, in a church setting, it's about like a ceremony. And the other meaning, and it's more original meaning, because it comes from the same word where we get ordain, is a command. There are two commands uh, that we believe are given in scripture to be baptised and to participate in the Lord's Supper. If you read any sort of literature around uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, you'll find that often they're referred to as sacraments. And people often say, well, there's two sacraments that we observe. Now, a sacrament isn't just something that's sacred. A sacrament is something where it's believed that there's something physical going on, but it's more than the physical. There's something spiritual going on as well. And that God adds his grace to this thing. That's what a sacrament is. And I must say that I lean towards that position. I can't point to any scripture, but I must say that that's observable, that when people are obedient to Christ through these things and, and are baptised and do involve themselves in the Lord's Supper, there seems to be a grace. There seems to be something happened in their lives. And certainly that was uh, my own experience. 
There are also some correspondencies between these two things. Firstly, uh, we'll talk about infant baptism lately, that, uh, later, that's not what we do. Both of them require active participation. You didn't make that choice to be baptised or be part of uh, communion. They both have spiritual significance and we'll talk about that. Importantly, they both occur in the context of community. These are community events. These are things that happen in the household of faith. And fourthly, um, both are commanded by Jesus. So it's probably a good place to start, isn't it? That commandment of Jesus. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 28, even if you read it a thousand times, because um, we're going to go through not only Matthew, but we're going to flick over to Acts, so you'll need your Bible. Matthew chapter 28, the context is Jesus has uh, died, been buried, been resurrected and made appearances to his followers over 40 days. This is the end of that period. And they're gathered together and uh, it says in verse 18, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. For how long? He said, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This, uh, to be honest, this wouldn't be any great surprise, I don't think, to the disciples because Jesus himself was baptised. He went to John the Baptist. You might remember the story in the beginning of uh, Matthew and Mark. He goes to John the Baptist and he says, I want to be baptised. And John said, I should be baptised by you. And Jesus said, no, let it take place. That all righteousness may take place. And then after that, there was lots of baptisms that were happening uh, in the presence of Jesus. And one part of the Bible says about Jesus baptising, but actually said, well, actually Jesus didn't do it. He was, it was his disciples. So they were used to people being baptised. So when Jesus says this, it's obviously not an add-on. Which one are you going to take out? Teaching, all that I've commanded you? Making disciples or baptism? No, they're all part of the same commission, the same command that Jesus gave. Go, teach them and baptise them. So, well, what did happen? Um, it's lovely that we have in the book of Acts, and if you turn over to the book of Acts, we have the history of the church and we have in Acts chapter 2 events that happened 10 days after Jesus gave that command. So we could go into theology of well how does, it, how does this baptism work all that kind of stuff but let's see how it actually worked out on the ground. Those people who listened to Jesus how did they respond? In Acts um, chapter 2 again the story is Jesus told them to wait that power on high would come and the Holy Spirit's poured out and these people are speaking languages that they've never learned but they're speaking about the good things of God to people all over Jerusalem and Jerusalem is filled with people at the time. Peter gets up and he says look there's nothing strange happening here this has been prophesied in scripture look what's happened is this Jesus who came who you crucified is actually Lord and Saviour and Jesus Christ has been resurrected and so this is an amazing story for these people can you imagine the emotion? Can you imagine these people may have been part of those crowds that say, crucify him, crucify him. Now Paul's saying, you've actually crucified the Lord of glory. And so their response is in verse 38. It says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that exactly what we'd expect to happen? That the command was given for Jesus to teach them, to teach them about Jesus' role, to make disciples, to baptise them. And a little later on it says um, that they were baptised, 3,000 of them. Let's have a look. Verse 41, those who had received his word were baptised and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And then they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The very things that Jesus had commanded, they had been faithful to. First they had to hear the word, then they had to repent, they had to put faith in Jesus and then they had to be obedient by being baptised and then to stick around, to be taught. Now you'll see as we go through these various examples in Acts, uh, basically all of those things in place, they're not always mentioned in that order and they're not all mentioned at the same time. But I think you'll see as we go through the book of Acts, you'll see that consistent follow-up. Jesus said, when you make disciples, I want you to teach them and I want you to baptise them. So let's go on another uh, example. I think we go to Acts chapter 8. What happened is um, things weren't easy after those baptisms. There was persecution and so uh, people scattered and Philip went out to a place called Samaria. And Samaria is a place where the, basically the second class citizens lived. This is people who were viewed as scum by the rest of the people in Israel. Philip goes there and preaches the good news of Jesus Christ. And it says uh, in where are we? chapter 8 and from verse... 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news, same thing, they've got to hear it, and then they believed the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptised, men and women alike. We might pass over those last couple of lines, men and women alike, because we're used to equality, but of course in the Jewish system, most of the responsibility was on the Jewish man to be at the festivals, the Jewish man who was circumcised. This is something for all people following Jesus Christ, men and women alike, to be baptised. And uh, in verse 14, we have the association with the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, it says that when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So again, we see these things over and over again, hearing the word, believing, repenting, this is about forgiveness of sins. And so then they were baptised and received the Holy Spirit. Jesus said exactly the same thing. Again, it would have been no surprise. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he talked about entering the kingdom of heaven. And he says, unless you are born of water and spirit, you will not see the kingdom of God. So there's this interaction between water and spirit. We saw it at Jesus' birthday. He was baptised and then what happened immediately? The Spirit descended on him like a dove. Here they were baptised and the Holy Spirit was received. I'm not going to say that this is a paradigm. I'm not going to say that in every case it works out this way because it doesn't. Very often I think we work through the theology of the Bible and I think one of the dangers of uh, those kind of theology books is they try and fit in some kind of pattern that works always. And God doesn't always work in that way. In the way, the unexpected ways 
um, God can work. And one of them's, uh, oh, actually, we'll, we'll talk about the Ethiopian eunuch at the end of Acts chapter 8. Philip again is a busy man. This time he's on the road and he meets an Ethiopian official. And the Ethiopian official is reading the Word of God. He's reading Isaiah, but he doesn't know what it's about. Have a look at the end of um, chapter 8. In verse 34, this uh, eunuch says to Philip, Tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And he must have included somewhere in that, he must have included the need to be baptised. Of course, that's what Jesus said, because... In verse 36 it says, As they went along the road they came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptised? And verse 38, And he ordered the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptised him. When he came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. Here we see the mode of baptism. We may have got it already from Jesus, uh, with John the Baptist, that it says he went in the water. As he came out of the water, the Spirit of God came to him. Here with the Ethiopian eunuch, same thing. They went down, there was a body of water, they went down into the water, he was baptised, and they came out again. That is the scriptural um, mode, if you like, of baptism. But imagine how that guy felt. This man was not someone who was uh, idly thinking about God. This has been someone who travelled from a distant land, from Africa, had travelled down to Israel to celebrate the Passover, the, to celebrate the, the victory of God over everyone else and bringing his people out into a promised land. And these promises of God must have been so rich to him. On the way back, he's reading the book of Isaiah and he's just puzzled and he's keen and he loves God. And then God graciously, through Philip, not only tells him about Jesus, and what a thrill to know that you've lived at this time and these things have happened and Jesus has been resurrected but then to be able to give voice to that by being baptised and say yes I'm yours I'm yours God and he just went down and, and he went down into the water and was, and was baptised uh, in the first part of Acts chapter 2 it says that 3,000 were added added to what? they were added to the church that's what baptism does it's, it's not as if we can we can parse these things out into separate entities. This is all part of the same package. It's belief, it's repentance, it's faith, it's baptism. And so sometimes the Bible talks, there was a whole paragraph I was nearly going to put up there, but it talked about all the things that the Bible says faith is responsible for and the things that baptism is responsible for, and they were almost the same. That's because it's supposed to be all part of the package. Now, don't think that baptism saves you. That's not what we believe. There's nothing in the water that will do anything for you. There's nothing in these elements that will help you at all. But it's part of the faith process. It's part of believing. It's part of having faith. It's part of trusting Christ and doing as uh, he would have us do. A little further on, we have uh, the example of Paul. This is in Acts 9, I think. Acts 9... Uh, one of the most famous Christians, this is a guy who has persecuted Christians, has been there when, when Christians uh, have been put to death, um, responsible for dragging them out of homes. And then Jesus meets him on that road and um, he's blinded and he gets, he's told to go to meet a guy called Ananias 
And so uh, Ananias tells him about Jesus. In verse um, 17 of chapter 9, Ananias laid hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you are coming has sent me so you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that experience that Paul's had? Can you imagine recognising that you've been on the wrong side this entire time? That you've been persecuting the people of God? That you've missed the opportunity to see Christ and be his disciple uh, in a fleshly sense? Can you, you imagine all that regret? And, and what does he do? It says he gets up and gets baptised. He got up and was baptised and took food and was strengthened. Again, an immediate heart response to what God has done and to the commandment of Jesus. In Acts chapter 10, uh, like I said to you, nothing goes necessarily according to the plan that we might have. Here, Peter is uh, sent to a man who's not a Jew at all. And Peter's very dubious about this through a series of uh, situations. Peter is convinced he needs to go and see this guy called Cornelius. Cornelius is a good man, the Bible says, and he's a God-fearer. That doesn't mean just that he feared God. That means that he's, he'd taken on basically the Jewish religion with the exception of being circumcised. So he was someone that's very interested in following God and, and God recognises that. He sends Peter to him and uh, he says, okay, Peter, apparently you've got a message for me. Speak. So Peter tells the story of Jesus Christ and in verse 44 of chapter 10, it says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on Gentiles also. They were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. What's Peter's response? You know what it is. Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptised who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptised. He ordered them to be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Why? Because they want to be taught everything that Jesus had commanded. Go, make disciples, teach them all they've commanded, baptising them. That's what happened here in Acts. A reversal of situation. The Holy Spirit comes first and then baptism. Uh, those things aren't important. It's just part of the work of God in people's lives. Uh, Acts chapter 16, this is a great, um, another great example. Paul this time's in prison. One thing I will tell you um, about baptism, and it has been my experience, that just as Jesus was baptised and then he went into the wilderness and was tempted by Satan, often after a baptism it can be a very difficult time. So I don't want to sell you something uh, without telling you the, the, ba the, the downside of that. Often people report that after being baptised they seem to get an increased attack by Satan. This is because we put our ourselves on God's side. We've said, I'm choosing to be known as a disciple of Christ and I'm going to follow him forever. So that's one expectation. But anyway, here Paul is being persecuted. He's in jail. Earthquake comes, opens up the jail. The person who's in charge of the jail is a Roman and under the Roman system, if you let one prisoner go, then you're put to death in their place. So this guy wants to avoid a painful death and thinks, I'll kill myself. That will be an easier way to go. Paul says, stop. And uh, this Philippian jailer understands that something amazing has gone on here. And uh, 
Where are we? Yeah, so verse 28 of chapter 16, Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, the Philippian jailer fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You and your household. Now, sometimes when we talk about baptisms, and there may be reference to household baptisms. We think, oh, well, who's in the household? Well, in a Roman household, it's not just your family. It could be your extended family. It would be servants and others. We know that they were old enough to understand and be told because it tells us. They spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them the next week. A year later, he said, come back, we'll be baptized. No, he said he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. Wow, what an experience. It says they rejoiced greatly having believed in God with his whole household. His whole household had put faith in God and were baptized. I'll just give you one more, which is uh, Paul's own experience. Um, in... Uh, do I have another one? No, we'll go, to, we'll go to Paul's experience in Acts uh, 22. Because we've already said that um, he said he got up to be baptised, but we actually see the sequence of this. Paul gives us a little more detail. In Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, it says, um, uh, from verse 14, Ananias said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, and to see the righteous one, and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now notice next words, Ananias' words. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptised, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Why do you delay? Do it immediately. This is the, the context of baptism in the New Testament. There was no such thing in New Testament churches of people being an unbaptized Christian. That didn't exist. How could it exist? When Jesus has said, I want you, as you get these people, I want you to make disciples of them, and I want you to baptize them, and I want to teach you all that, you, uh, all that I have, I want you to teach them all that I have commanded you. And these people you can see consistently through the book of Acts are very faithful to that commission. Baptism is... Something that Paul expands uh, a lot on. I'll just read you one, one verse in Romans chapter 6. He can talk many times about, you know, all of you were baptised for this reason or that reason because it was impossible for you to be unbaptised and be a Christian. It was unthinkable because the context was you hear the word, you get converted, you put faith in Jesus and then you have this opportunity to have your sins washed away. And isn't that a beautiful metaphor? to have your sins washed away, to think about that. Can you imagine those 3,000 or those 5,000, to think of their sin that they committed against Jesus Christ and then going down in that water and God had provided this means where it seemed like this, the very water that washed over them had washed their sins away and they were clean and pure before God. I mean, how amazing for the Philippian jailer, who knows what his life was before that. For, for Paul to be washed clean, chief of all sinners, he said, he considered himself to be and yet washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ and symbolised by this 
um, lovely washing. But in Romans chapter 6, again, a lot of what we know about baptism is Paul speaking um, not really about the subject, and we'll find that about the Lord's Supper too. Here he's not talking about baptism at all. He's talking about the grace of God. He's saying the grace of God is amazing. He talks about it a lot in Romans chapter 5 and, and about how our sins are washed away and God's grace is so great that it can cover all of these sins. And so people's reaction, incorrect reaction, is why don't we sin a lot? Because if we sin a lot, it's just going to make God look so good because his grace will just be ever flowing. Paul said, no, that's not the idea. That's the context of here, Romans chapter 6. He addresses it. He says, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who, who died to sin still live in it? And here's the bit about baptism. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus have been baptised into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in a newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. The, uh, a commentator says this. Uh, on, he says, Therein lies the great practical value of baptism for the sanctifying of the life of the believer. It becomes in him a God-willed, concise expression of his inner experience as a believer and of his new God-given standing a permanent reminder of his passage out of death into life, of his renunciation of the world and sin and his surrender unto the Lord. Have you ever thought of it that way? It's an amazing moment. Whatever that day was, that day of baptism, you might not know when you became a Christian. You may not know. That may have been something that happened over a period of time. But you, knew that you do know the day when you were obedient to Christ and were baptised. And you look back and you say, well, this baptism, as Paul says, is a baptism into his death. And as we go under the water, we remember the feeling of going under the water and the water enveloping us and we're dead to the old life and we come up again as a resurrection and we walk in a new life. Baptism is a wonderful thing that God has given us. A wonderful, wonderful thing. Yeah, and the next slide too, I thought C.H. Dodd said, said this, which I thought was also profound. Here in the sacrament is something actually done, a step taken which could never be retracted. Before it, a man was not a member of the church, the people of God, now he is a member. If he should thereafter be unfaithful, that would not simply be a return to his former condition. Something has happened, something overt, definable with a setting in time and space attested by witnesses. There's something great about making that decision. Paul says, we're buried with him in baptism, we're baptised into one body. It's a symbol of something that actually has happened. It's faith that makes us part of the, of the church, but these things are seen as being, and I saw the quote many, many times, a sign and seal, a sign and seal of these things, a sign of seal, a sign and seal of being part of the church, a sign and seal of being identified with Christ. We identify with him in his death and burial and resurrection and in the new life that we lead. That is the blessing that we give to God. So as I said to you, there was no concept in the first century of being an unbaptised Christian. Paul didn't write his letters in that way. They were written assuming that people were baptised. The second century brought some changes in the church. 
new theology, children being baptised, and the belief that's still held in the Roman Catholic Church that you need to baptise a baby as soon as they're born because this will wash away original sin and they're automatically part of the church. So on one hand we have that, that now children, babies were being baptised and so we have a delinking between faith and repentance and baptism. Baptism occurs on its own and it's part of this sacramentalism that starts to invade the church and there become more sacraments because the church becomes a place where you actually come to do something which will get you right with God. And so you have the sacrament of confession and you have, I think the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church have something like seven sacraments. The sacrament of confirmation. Well, of course, that wasn't needed before. But now, if you're going to baptise babies, you need some, some way to show that this person has actually got a faith of their own. And so you do it through something called confirmation. So babies were being baptised at the same time or a similar, similar time. Um, the idea came, you shouldn't actually get baptised till you're on your deathbed because there's a whole load of sin that can happen after you're baptised. The safest time to get baptised is actually when you're about to croak. Get baptised then. You're not likely to do anything wrong and so therefore that's the best way to do it. Both of these, uh, I think, are not the biblical, are not the biblical order. Create a whole load of other problems. If you've got babies, if they're unbaptized babies, then they're in a problem. So now you need to invent a place for them. Where do they go? And so for many years, the Catholic Church talked about this place called Limbo. That's where babies go who are unbaptized. And then, if then how do you get them out? And then, you know, there's ways and indulgences and, and ways that we can get them out of there. So all of this is a divergence from the way things were in the first century. And it's because at some point, one of those generations didn't take Jesus' words seriously. I want you to go. I want you to make disciples, I want you to baptise them and I want, to teach you, uh, I want you to teach them all that you have uh, commanded. So bad did it get that in the, well it wasn't only in Catholic times, but after the Reformation, people were put to death by other Christians because as adults they decided they wanted to get baptised. This was considered heresy. These people were called Anabaptists, Anna just means second. These were people who get baptised for a second time. They'd be baptised as children and then through their study of the scriptures they'd recognise, no, I need to put faith and repent and believe before I'm baptised. And because of that belief, I think there's, I read through the other day, I'll scan through, there's a book called Martyr's Mirror about the persecution of those people over centuries. I think there's about 5,000 put to death, mostly by drowning. So the theory was, you know, if they want water, let's give them water, and they would drown. People take their children away, drown the parents. Um, I was reading one the other day where the, his wife was taken away, she was drowned. He was put in prison, um, a clamp was put on his tongue, and then a hot iron was brought, and they burnt the tip of his tongue, so it swelled up, so that he couldn't testify to his belief before they took him to, um, to be burnt alive at the stake. This was not uncommon. You were put to death for being baptised as a believer. I mean, how far? How far can we go from the biblical uh, way it is? And even today, in Islamic and other countries, when you're baptised, that is the point at which the persecution really starts. That's the point where your life is in danger. When you say, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ and it's going to be a witness to those around me. So, how does it... How is it so that there are in the Christian world unbaptised Christians today? How is that possible? It's only possible 
for two reasons, I think. One is that someone has not been teaching the right thing. They haven't taught them everything that Jesus has commanded. So no fault on the person who's never taught that baptism is an important thing. And the second one would be disobedience. Christ has said, you should be baptised. Uh, but I think what happens is there's a spirit of rationalisation. Well, what does that really mean? So I go and get baptised and have some water put over me. Um, I believe. What difference does that make? Whenever I think of this, I was talking to someone about this the other day uh, and it reminded me, I think of an example in 2 Kings. Have a look over with me if you would in 2 Kings chapter 5. There's a story of a guy uh, from Syria. He's an army commander but he has a terrible disease of leprosy and he's suffered with it for, for quite a while. He happens to have a slave girl uh, in his household and she says, you know, if you went to Israel... There's a man there that could cure you, could fix you. And so, uh, as you would, if you've got a terrible disease, he takes everything he has over to Israel in 2 Corinthians, um, oh, sorry, 2 Kings chapter 5. And he brought all sorts of gifts and he brought all sorts of things. And then it says, um, Naaman came with his horses in his chariots, verse 9, and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha is this prophet that can cure him for sure. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. Sounds easy, doesn't it? Uh, but Naaman's not happy with that. Notice what it says. Naaman was furious. That doesn't sound like much, does it? Go and wash in the river seven times. Naaman was furious and went away and said, behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went, sorry, he turned and went away in a rage. He was probably right. The rivers in Damascus probably were better. They were probably beautiful rivers, much more clean rivers. He could have had a much better time there. But that wasn't God's design, was it? And so... Fortunately, aren't, aren't you pleased if you have someone that stops you doing something uh, that would really cause you a problem? I'm thinking of um, David and Abigail when he was, he was going to do something really bad. He's got someone with him saying, no, don't do that. Um, we're all happy to have, if we've got wives, to have wives that stop us from doing silly things on occasion. On this occasion, it's a servant. So the servant, his servants came near and spoke to him and said, my father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you have not have done it? So told him to scale a mountain to cure his leprosy. Or if they had told him to do some amazing pilgrimage, maybe he would have done it. They say, how much more so when he says, wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a child. And he was clean. What a great result from obedience. But don't we try and rationalise? Well, what difference does it make where I get baptised? What difference does it make? Maybe I've made a commitment to God. What, it, what difference does it make to have this water put over me? Isn't it just the command of Jesus? Isn't that enough? Are we going to rationalise all of Jesus' commands and say, well, I know he told us to love our enemy, but maybe I don't need that because that's the, the other reason that people give. Well, it's not necessary for salvation. 
Yeah, that, that's true. It's faith that will save you. But part of God's way of saving us is through baptism. But yes, it, it, it won't save us. But what about the rest of Jesus' commands? What about it says, you know, if they hit you on your one cheek, pass that, oh, well, does that save me? Do I really need to do that? What about when he tells us to love one another as I have loved you? Well, will that save me? If that doesn't really save me, then maybe the, we could rationalise every command of Jesus. But the fact is, part of being a Christian is to say, I'm following Jesus, both by example and in his word. And we have no way of being able to rationalise ourselves out of that. Be baptised, he says. Be baptised is what we should do. And what blessings come from that. Um, the next uh, quote from G.R. Beasley Murray in his book, Baptism in the New Testament, says this, Baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus, whatever else it came to imply, was in the earliest time a baptism for the sake of the Lord Jesus and therefore in submission to him as Lord and King. He that in baptism calls on the name of the Lord undergoes baptism in a prayerful spirit. It becomes a supreme occasion and even vehicle of his yielding to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is an aspect of baptism to which justice has not been done in the church since its early days. Baptism as a means of prayer for acceptance with God and for full salvation from God, an instrument of surrender of a man formerly at enmity with God, but who has learned of the great reconciliation, lays down his arms in total capitulation and enters into peace. That's beautiful, isn't it? Have we thought of baptism in that way, of a capitulation to God, of a, of a disarming us, of a surrender? We often talk about surrender. That is a great surrender. And so I urge you today, if you've taken the steps of repentance, if you have faith, don't delay in being baptised. Don't delay in being baptised. For the time I have left, I'll talk about something else, um, the Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper, Communion, Eucharist, they're all biblical terms and they all refer to Jesus' other commands. So we'll, we'll look at that in Luke chapter 22. It says, uh, Luke 22 and from 14, When the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with them. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I'll never again eat it until it was fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Yes. Do this in remembrance of me. That's the other command. That's the other imperative. To share. This opportunity to share uh, as on the table of God with the rest of his family. Because we talked about baptism, that's a once-only thing. That's a thing, the sign and seal of our incorporation in Christ, of our being part of the church. And then we get to have this meal together. We share it together, recognising that we're all one in Jesus Christ. 
and he's blessed us. And when we look at the, the juice and the bread, we think about what's behind those. The blood of Jesus Christ shed for us, uh, his body. It's interesting that uh, in some of the books that I read, we talk about, yeah, do this in remembrance of me, just a physical thing to remember. I'm not sure if I've got the next slide. Is that one? But one of the, uh, well, I'll read this first. At the table of remembrance, the church does not really simply reflect as a mental exercise upon the cross of Calvary, but relives the accomplished reconciliation, is taken back to the upper room and the hill, shares in the saving work which it knows as a present reality, because its author is a living one in the midst of his ransomed people. And the context of this is, and in the, lots of the references that I read, they said our idea of remembering is so different to the way the Hebrews thought of the word remember. Remembrance wasn't just a physical thing. We, oh yeah, I remember that moment. I remember uh, when this happened. The context is, and the context of this meal was the Passover, that when they were told to remember this, it was to bring those things from the past to the present. So when they thought about this great um, saving work of God, when it brought them out through the Red Sea, after the ten plagues, brought them into a, a new land, saved their firstborn, that was something that they were to recreate, if you like, uh, once a year when they had the Passover. And Jesus is saying something similar in relation to, do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance is bringing the past into the present. It's not remembering a single event. And there's a huge difference in that. There's a huge emotional difference when we see ourselves represented in that Last Supper and what happened there and the salvation that was accomplished. And we recognise that Jesus is in our midst when we enjoy the Lord's Supper together, when we relive the reconciliation, the fact that we're now one with Christ. That's what remembering is all about. Paul, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this is the verse, if, uh, if ever people are talking about communions, usually they won't, they, the one they come to. But as often with scripture, Paul didn't start by talking about the Lord's Supper. He was actually talking about the issues that were going on in the place. And in that church in Corinth, which may have been probably a lot smaller than this, um, there were divisions in that place. And Paul said those divisions should not exist. There should never be a division in this place between people who are rich and poor or people of some um, literacy level or lower literacy level or their financial situation or where they came from. We are one in Christ. And Paul says when you come to the Lord's Supper, he said, it's not even the Lord's Supper when you celebrate it. That's what he says. It's not, when, the way you're doing it is not the Lord's Supper. It's a pretty amazing thing, isn't it? It's a waste of time them coming and looking at these elements of, of juice and bread because they were ignoring the very master who they were supposed to be sharing some time with. Because the master has embraced all people and his blood has been shed for all people. And Paul says, you know, some people are going ahead, the richer ones, uh, you know, they have days off where the poor people don't. So they come, they could start early, start drinking, get drunk, eat lots of food, there'd be no food left for the other people that came. Um, usually in that situation there are a couple of courtyards, so the rich people would be in one courtyard, uh, the other people would be next door in the next door courtyard. A total separation, total non-caring. But Paul, in context of dealing with that, tells us about what he received. And again, 
Note the way in which this is 30 years later, but they've been faithful in passing on what Jesus had commanded. So Paul says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. How close is that to what we just read in Luke? It's almost identical, isn't it? Faithfully passed on from generation to generation. This is an important meal. And he goes on to say, For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's great significance in what we have here. This is the blood of the covenant. The Jews were in an old covenant um, with the law given by Moses. Jesus, or in fact, uh, God to Jeremiah said, there's going to be a time when I'm going to bring a new covenant. And it's not going to be written on tablets of stone, it's going to be written in the heart. This is what we experience as Christians. The Holy Spirit, we receive the Holy Spirit through faith and repentance. We're born again. We have this amazing relationship with God. We're brought into a new covenant and we get to celebrate it together. We get to celebrate these things, the fact that we're in the covenant. It proclaims the death of Jesus Christ to those around us. Anyone who comes in the store will see this, might wonder what it is. We can tell them we're proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and new life in him. It's really important. It's not an everyday thing. There might be reasons why you um, are not able to be at church every week, but one of them shouldn't be the fact that I could be here celebrating. I could be here enjoying a meal with fellow believers, people of the household of faith and Christ. That's an important reason. It's not to get together or anything else, but we can celebrate together around that table. It's such an important thing, so much so that Paul goes on to say, anyone who eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the, bloody, of the body and the blood of the Lord. That's powerful words, isn't it? Guilty of the body and blood of the Lord to eat and drink in an unworthy manner. And notice this unworthy manner. It's not unworthy people. We're all unworthy. Um, the invitation is for us to come and enjoy. But what was the unworthiness? The unworthiness was that they weren't recognising the body. Paul says, it's one loaf, we're one body in Christ. Well, they were acting like this is an individual thing. And maybe sometimes we come to communion in that attitude. This is an individual thing. This is something I get. No, this is the family meal. And it should never be taken in an unworthy manner in a way that we're uh, that we had divisions or that in some way we're out of sorts with each other. That should never happen. It should never happen in an unworthy manner. But the man must examine himself and in doing so he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine himself. We're not looking for perfection uh, when we examine ourselves. That's not the idea of this. But to examine how we feel, how we feel about Christ and how we feel about uh, the members of the church. I came across this in... Uh, uh, the larger catechism with scripture references it says those they that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper are before they come to prepare themselves thereunto by examining themselves of their being in Christ of their sins and wants of the truth and measure of their knowledge faith repentance love to God and the, and the brethren charity to all men forgiving those that have done them wrong of their desires after their desires after Christ and of their new obedience 
and by renewing the exercises of these graces by serious meditation and fervent prayer. Basically, what they're gathering together, scriptural references say, we should, we should think seriously about what this is when we take communion. Let's think and enjoy the fact that we receive reconciliation in Christ. But let's think about our relationship with others as well, others outside and inside this place. Let's get right with those things um, before we consume. So important is it that Paul says uh, in verse 29, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep, that is, in death. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. That's a pretty powerful statement, don't you think? We, are, we often brush over those verses and we go, yeah, I'm not exactly sure what that means. Paul knows what it means. He says some people are sick and are dying because of the way that they approach the Lord's Supper. So we should never take it in a meaningless way. We should never take it um, by way of rote. It should also be, always be in a thoughtful, examining way and be careful about our participation. Historically, baptism and the Lord's Supper have gone together. So the understanding is, yeah, I'm part of the church as I'm baptised and then we share the meal together. And in fact, the only non-biblical word I can think of for the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, communion, is the Mass. And the Catholic Mass comes from the Latin word missio, which means dismissed. And what would happen is when the Mass was brought out, communion was brought out, people would be dismissed if they weren't baptised. They would be out of the church and the meal was for Christians. So generally, uh, that's, that's been the way it works. But the question comes up in a practical sense, what about children? Lots of people put their minds to this. Well, what about children? What's their position? Baptism, communion, and when should a child be baptised? Should they be baptised at four? Is that, is that okay? That they're 12? Are they whatever? In our church, um, the position came long before I was here to say who's in the best position to know whether their child is ready for baptism? Who's in the best position to know whether your child is ready to be baptised? It's you. The parents are in the best place. They know the level at which that, that child understands. They know the level of their depth of love and faith uh, and so on and whether they're able to you know, exercise a saving faith, all that kind of stuff. So it's been left to the parents. In the case of communion, uh, well, it's the same thing. Who best knows whether that child is in a position to do the things that we talked about there, which is really examine ourselves, be in relationship, understand the relationship to each other and understand who Christ is. So that's something we've left to parents. Uh, but it is a serious thing. It is a serious thing to think about. And one of the dangers of that process of saying, leave it to the parents, is that when people come up here um, and somebody is new to the place, unless we speak about it regularly, what happens people just do it because other people do it. It's a bit the same with communion. You go into a place and what you're automatically looking for is how do I fit in here? What's everyone else doing? Oh, they're getting up to take communion. I should get up and take communion. And that's why we often say, if you're not a Christian, if, you're not, uh, if you don't have faith in Jesus, much better if you just sit there, watch it go by. It really won't have much meaning for you and it has great meaning for us. And the same with children, the same thing can happen. Those kids are having it. That, that's not the way and it's never been the way that we've approached it. Each parent must think seriously about the, their child and about their, um, 
willingness to do so and whether they should do. It's an amazing thing to share in the Lord's Supper. Like I, I say, this is a heart thing. To be baptised is an amazing experience. I was reading through a couple of experiences from people of our own church from a few years ago when I asked them for experience. They say, I felt great peace. Sometimes I just felt I, felt I was doing the right thing. Sometimes I said, I felt I was never worthy before, but I recognised, yes, I am worthy because Christ has made me worthy. Great. Another one said, things just went exponentially from there. It just really changed. I didn't think it was going to change anything, but it really did, that step of faith. And the same with communion. It's something we were enriched by. It's a grace given by God. There's a song that um, Laura's going to sing in a minute, but the verse, a couple of words kept um, coming back to me dur during the week. It says, uh, I'll probably have to sing it. Once your enemy... Now seated at your table, thank you, Jesus. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Isn't that an amazing thing? And when we remember, when we go back to that time of those disciples around Jesus, we're seated at that table with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to share communion now. Um, I'm just going to pray. And if you feel that you in that situation with God, I'd encourage you to examine yourself and then I'd also encourage you to partake joyfully of what Christ has offered this amazing gift so let me pray Lord this is you've given us amazing grace you've given us amazing gifts two commands that are not onerous but are beautiful to capitulate to surrender ourselves is exactly the right response in baptism and what a joy to feel that our sins are washed away through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the gift that has been given us. We thank you so much that these simple elements that are available to all of us just tell such a great story. The bread that represents your body, that you're a human, that you sympathise with our weaknesses, that you lived on this earth, shared our burdens right to the end uh, and took them ultimately. And this body, which is more than just us more than just me it's us it's our family it's our brothers and sisters wherever they are in the world are united to us in one body we thank you for that gift we thank you for the blood of the covenant you've written these things on our heart and we see it represented it's been accomplished through this precious blood of jesus christ and we don't want to take that for granted for one second so may you fill us as we f as we eat and as we drink may you fill us with, with joy and fill us with a sense of reconciliation and fill us with a sense of worthiness, your worthiness. And may we go out and teach and disciple and baptise as you've commanded. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So deacons will sort that out. Come, come forward. Enjoy.
has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. perfect sacrifice I've been brought near your enemy you've made your friend pouring out the riches of your glorious grace your mercy and your kindness know no end your blood thank you the father's wrath completely satisfied jesus thank you once your enemy now seated at your table jesus thank you table Jesus thank